Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Bookcase listeners. I'm Charlie Gibson. And I'm Kate Gibson. I'm very happy to be here this week because this is our very first completely self-congratulatory episode. <laughs> this is this is a podcast to pat yourself on the back, is it? This is. This is. I guess we could call this podcast, Aren't We Lucky? Or we could call it, Aren't We Prescient? <laughs> because the Pulitzer Prize for fiction is being shared by two authors. And where did you hear about those authors? I hope you heard about them and listened to them on past podcasts. This is Barbara Kingsolver, who wrote Demon Copperhead, and Hernan Diaz, who wrote Trust. We talked to both of them in past weeks, and they are sharing the prize, deservedly so, the Pulitzer Prize for Best Fiction. These are both amazing, amazing books. And the fact that we talked to both authors when these books were coming out, I think justifies the fact that we had James Comey take a vow of loyalty to the bookcase because we are <laughs> we are clearly ahead of the pack. Now, I think it's really interesting that both of these books are sharing the Pulitzer this year. In some ways, to me, these books are two sides of the same coin about where America is. Trust is very much a book about extreme wealth and how extreme wealth affects someone personally. And Demon Copperhead is about extreme poverty, extreme rural poverty, and how that tears apart the fabric of the family and how you can try to repair the fabric of the family given that difficult backdrop. Given where America is and how divided we are and how lost we are between the have and the have-nots, the urban and the rural, I think the fact that these books are sharing the prize says something really interesting about our current events right now. And I think there's something else that needs to be mentioned, because in reaction to these books and in reaction to the podcast, I've talked to a lot of people who have read them both or read one or the other. And both of them, I have had the reaction, well, I had trouble getting into it. It starts dark. And yet I think Demon Copperhead, which, as you know, if you know the book, is a modern day version of David Copperfield that Barbara has written magnificently, I think. It starts, it's difficult. And yet, as you go through it, she said, I tried not to make this novel too dark. And you get a sense of hope, even though she's very emphatic in saying, we tend to overlook the area of Appalachia where she lives. And we tend to pigeonhole and characterize people as poor. And they begin to think of themselves as poor. And getting out of that cycle of thought is difficult. In the case of Trust, Hernan Diaz's book, you don't know quite what you're reading. You need to look at the table of contents, strangely enough, and you realize that he's written four different parts of this book that all come together, but they don't come together in your mind until you get really far into the book. And the same thing with Demon Copperhead. You don't really realize that this isn't so dark until you get into it. In both cases, readers need to give it time. And people are not willing to do that so much anymore. They, they all want instant gratification, which, as I've quoted before, Carrie Fisher says in one of her books, the problem with instant gratification is it takes too long. <laughs> but you have to give these books some time. 
but both of them are very worthy reads. And we have boiled down the original interviews we had so that you can hear from both of them in this podcast. So we start our recap with Barbara Kingsolver talking about Demon Copperhead, which as we say, the elevator pitch is to modern retelling of David Copperfield in rural Appalachia with fentanyl. But let me tell you, there is joy, there is beauty, and there is humor in this book. And it is worth a read. So here it is, our boiled down conversation with Barbara Kingsolver. Kid born to the junkie is a junkie. He'll grow up to be everything you don't want to know. The rotten teeth and dead zone eyes. The nuisance of locking up your tools in the garage so they don't walk off. The rent by the weak motel squatting well back from the scenic highway. This kid, if he wanted a shot at the finer things, should have got himself delivered to some rich or smart or Christian, non-using type of mother. Anybody will tell you the born of this world are marked from the get-out, win or lose. Me, though. I was a born sucker for the superhero rescue. Did that line of work even exist in our trailer home universe? Had they all quit Smallville and gone looking for bigger action? Save or be saved. These are questions. You want to think it's not over till the last page. I'm not the first person to do this. I mean, every classic has been written and rewritten from King Lear and Jane Smiley's 1,000 Acres to, you know, on and on. And I will also say that Shakespeare got King Lear from someplace else. All of his plots were based on previously written works. So it's not, when I say in my defense, it's just that I didn't dream this up, the idea of transposing a classic to modern times. But this did come to me in a really weird way. I didn't plan on it. I just knew I had to write about this generation of orphans that we have in southwestern Virginia. I live in southern Appalachia. It's ground zero of the opioid epidemic. Lots of talk is going on about the good guys and the bad guys here, but nobody's talking about the kids who've lost their parents. And we have truly a generation of kids here whose families have been devastated by this epidemic. So I wanted to write about them. I didn't know how to spin this dark story in a way that would really get readers to come in and follow along. It's a tough sell, right? People have their ideas about addiction and choices and how was I going to counter all that? I had no idea. And then Charles Dickens said, look, I... (laughs) This is orphans totally are my bailiwick. I did this. The Victorians didn't want to hear it either. But you just give them a really good story. And most importantly, you let the child tell the story. So I did. Did you start writing a book about Appalachia and the kids who are orphans and the amount of fentanyl and drug addiction that there is in that area and then realize, oh, my goodness, this is paralleling David Copperfield? Or did you start? thinking, I'm going to transpose Copperfield to the modern day? Well, that's a good question. There are many different ways an author writes a book. It's not one process. I think about a book for years, sometimes a lot of years, before I really begin to write you know, sentences and paragraphs and scenes in chapter one and chapter two. I sort of cook it on the back burner, usually while I'm writing other things. So that's where this book was. It was cooking on the back burner because I live where this book takes place. I was watching the kids, watching the story unfold, watching how families, you know, have imploded and just kind of taking 
taking note of the whole crisis and worrying, worrying about how to tell this story because I knew I had to. And so it didn't move from the back burner to the front until the day that I had that brand inspiration to tell the story in a Dickensian way. And in fact, I had that inspiration while I was sitting at Charles Dickens's desk in a place called Bleak House in Broadstairs, where I, it, which was being run as a bed and breakfast. I just booked myself in on a whim at the end of a book tour. I had a weekend to just rest before applying home. I saw this online, Bleak House, former home, Charles Dickens. He wrote David Copperfield here. So I thought, what the heck, and booked myself in. And I kind of thought, how Dickensy could it really be? Well, it was really Dickensy, down to like Bob Cratchit behind the desk and Little Dorrit limping down the hall. I mean, it wasn't like <laughs> these were real people. It wasn't a reenactment, but it just <laughs> was so atmospheric. It was November. There was an ice storm outside. The sea was roiling. And they just said, well, <laughs> nobody else is here because why would they be <laughs> in the middle of November? So just have the run of the place. And so... I found Dickens's study, which they still, they had, you know, here in the U.S., there would be velvet ropes, right? There in the U.K., it was just Charles Dickens's house. I have a seat. So I sat at his desk. There were manuscripts and playbills and all this Dickensian stuff lying around. And there was a copy of David Copperfield that he had given to the prime minister to carry with him. And I realized this was a gesture of outrage. You know, saying this story, which, and of course, David Copperfield was his story. It was the most personal of his books because he lived through that, you know, all that structural poverty, you know, of the poor house and what we would now call foster care and getting bounced around. And so he wrote that story and he gave it to the prime minister. And that's when I really started to feel him speak to me as I was sitting there at his desk where he wrote that novel. And it was just this charge. Like, don't, you don't get to let go. You have to do this, but you let the kid tell the story. And right there and then I had this vision of this redheaded kid, my David Copperfield, which who would be called Demon Copperhead. Actually, the demon came later. I just saw him as Copperhead. And at that desk, I wrote, first of all, I got myself born. Um, I started writing it at his desk. And then I brought him home with me and he sat right here, you know, next to me at my desk. I'm interested to know what the process was like. Did you read a chapter, put it down and write? Did you say, I've read it once. I need to get this thing as far away from me as possible so it doesn't get in my head. Like, how did you handle the potential pressure of that parallel? I didn't feel any pressure. First of all, the man gave me permission, right? Second of all, nothing comes out of this room until I'm sure it's working. So that's like step one in any project is to give myself permission to write a terrible first draft because it, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Nobody's going to know. Even my dog, you know, who's right here won't know because <laughs> uh, he can't read. <laughs> I have control over this process. I'm going to try. Everything I write is daunting, verging on impossible when I begin it. That's how I know I've started something good. If I feel like for sure I'm going to crash and burn. If it feels really scary, that's how I know I'm going to be working at the edge of my powers. So, no, I, I wasn't scared. I, you know, I thought I got to try this. It sounds it sounds really, really hard. So that's catnip. How I actually did it is, well, of course, first I reread David Copperfield on the plane home. I mean, I remembered chapter one, I am born. I knew how to, and that he was born in the call, born inside the amniotic sac. And that gave him a superpower that he would never drown. You know, we all remember that much. So I was able to kind of like hammer out chapter one 
then thanks to the wonder of downloadable books whose copyright has expired, I was able to just get it and, and read it <laughs> on the way home. And the whole thing kept working. I thought, this is going to work. I can do this. Of course, it's incredibly challenging to figure out, you know, what is the modern equivalent of a shoe black factory? You know, what are the modern equivalents of indigent boys homes where kids are sent when they don't have, uh, their parents don't have money? What is, what is uh, my region's version of child labor? Well, I knew all those things. And so I started plotting it out in my mind. And as far as the mechanics of it, what I did when I got home I always work on a computer and I always, as I said, I'm very architectural. I plot out the whole novel before I really start writing. So I know the beginning, middle and end. In this case, you know, the, the beginning, middle and end was known 150 years ago, but I opened a like an Excel file because David Copperfield has a lot of short chapters, which is part of his, this is part of Dickens mode, you know, his MO. This is how he gets through through a long book. That feeling when you're reading at night and you say, oh, six more pages in this chapter, I can do that. And then on page, you know, six and a half, he gives you this hook that pulls you in. So you have to read the next chapter. I knew that was the secret to telling the story. So I opened an Excel file and with 66 cells and I wrote a sentence in each cell, what happens in David Copperfield? And then under it, I started filling in what happens in my version working out the parallels, the characters, all of it. I got the sense you were having fun because in some ways there are scavenger hunt aspects, you know, yeah. Angus to Agnes. And, you know, so every time you would clue me in on something, I'd be like, yes, 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 yes. That's in the book. Well, yes. And it is. I mean, this is a novel about drugs and about what the ravages of opioid use disorder. But more deeply than that, it's a novel about poverty that's built into a place by history and what that does to people. And one of the things it does, as you say, is it ruptures families. It leaves people growing up longing for more than they can have, longing for some kind of validation. And that's where drugs come in. So I am absolutely convinced that if Dickens were writing now, this is what he'd be writing about. As Demon tries to tell you many times in this novel, they're not the problem, they're the solution. They're not a good solution, but they're the only solution at hand for a whole lot of people who are living in a world that continually shows them everything they can't have. You mentioned the first line, first I got myself born, but later you say born in the mobile home. That's like the Eagle Scout of trailer trash. I felt this is really discouraging. You're not giving him much hope. Did you feel that as you wrote? Well, I think that his situation would be deemed hopeless by most onlookers, especially if this is news to them, that there are parts of the country that are so where where every kind of, of help is spread so thin, from medical care to the foster care system and everything. But there is demon has this quality of resilience. Part of it is anger. Part of it is just this sort of tough decision he's made to count on himself and his peers. He knows that his caseworker is you know, probably going to forget his name. He gets his best friend Maggot to help him out when he needs help. He kind of builds his own structure of support because he has that resilience. There's a scene where he's put in a new school and he sees the guidance counselor and he's just expecting the same old, same old. The guidance counselor is going to tell him what a screw up he is. 
Well, this is an unusual guidance counselor who has read all of his files, including his caseworker and his uh, everything terrible that's happened to him and his parents and so forth. And this counselor says, well, one thing I know about you is that you are resilient. And Demon's never heard that word. He thinks it's a diagnosis. And he says, are you going to give me drugs for that? <laughs> because that's, that's right. the, the only answer he's ever known. And it's these are prescription drugs. These kids are medicated from the get-go. So what I tried to build into that voice, that point of view and that storytelling voice is, look, I'm telling you this story because I've survived. You know he's going to be alive at the end because he's looking back. He's telling this from the ripe age of probably, you know, 29 or 30. He's saying it's kind of the hero's journey. This is what I went through. I'm still here. Right. And he belongs to a very large class of people in this country for whom survival is resistance. Mm. Yeah, I wanted to ask you one more question, although it's not really a literature question. I mean, given what you wrote about and what you just talked about, I'm getting a master's in library science and in education. And we have a lot of discussions about whether the United States is still a meritocracy uh-huh. and whether or not we can still sell the message to kids of pulling themselves up by their bootstraps. Can we? I, I think it's a lie. I think it's been a lie for a long time. And I think that myth, which is you know so built into our national identity, it's our main kind of our creation myth and what holds us together as a country. And it is such a disservice to the kids who are born poor, who have no access to even dental care. A lot of kids, you know, get to the age of 20 without ever having seen a dentist because they can't, you know, so like think what toothaches do to your uh, like school performance. The danger of the myth of the meritocracy is that the corollary is like, if you're smart enough and if you work hard enough, you will succeed. So the corollary to that is if you're not succeeding, if you're living among people who none of whom have succeeded, either you're stupid or you're not working hard. So it has a backlash. And so there's so much shame to poverty, which is compounded by you know the popular culture and seeing all the people with all the things that you don't have. The danger is it's so toxic. That shame is so toxic. And kids, I think kids give up on themselves. Adults give up on themselves. And I think it's interesting that, I mean, and you can see that in this novel, how, you know, when, when Demon is accidentally diagnosed as gifted, because he is, he's really, really smart, just not, you know, in some of the most obvious ways. He's like, don't tell anybody. I mean, they will never <laughs> let me play football. It's really a part of our culture. And I think part of that is a self-defense against the shaming that and the condescension that we experience every day, seeing ourselves you know, portrayed on TV as dumb hillbillies. To quote you back to yourself, a very pertinent sentence, you get to a point of not giving a damn over people thinking you're worthless. Mainly, by getting there first yourself. Barbara Kingsolver, this is a wonderful book. Both Katie and I really loved it. Thank you so much for your interest. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. 
We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. And then a boiled-down conversation that we had a few months ago with Hernan Diaz uh, when Trust had just come out, was getting incredibly great reviews, and as we said earlier, is now sharing the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction with Barbara Kingsolver. Our conversation with Hernan Diaz and his book, Trust. Your book, Trust, is intricately plotted. Four separate sections which you tell us right in the table of contents page, a novel, a manuscript, a memoir, a diary, all written by different people. But what's interesting to me is you're not sure what you're reading in the first part. Then the second part tells you more about the first part. The third part tells you more about the first and second part. And the fourth part tells you a lot about all three. Did you have that construct planned when you started? Well, thank you, Charles, for having me. And Kate, it's an enormous pleasure. And thank you for the interesting question. Yes and no. I knew that I was going to write about wealth in America. And what I discovered very quickly is that this is a very ossified type of narrative, the one spun around wealth. And it's always very monolithic. There's one voice, usually that of a great self-made man, right? And that, of course, seemed a little fishy to me. So my intention was in part to debunk this idea of the almighty, you know, man who by sheer force of his ingenuity pulls himself up his bootstraps and makes this great fortune. I wanted to look at the voices that had been maybe excluded from this narrative. And since we're talking about voice, that is in part the explanation of why there are four sections, four documents, four parts to the novel. I wanted to explore four different voices and in the process ask who is given a voice, who has even sort of a megaphone to expand their voice, and who is denied a voice, who has been gagged in these histories about wealth. So I think part of the journey, hopefully, that the reader makes throughout the book has not only to do with discovering, as you said, Charles, the different truths that each part reveals, but also what is implied in each one of these voices. And this is why I needed four parts. And this is why that general structure was clear to me from very early on in the process. Did you write them sequentially? I did not. I, no, I wrote the first part, just in case someone listening hasn't read the book. The first part is a whole novel within the novel, entirely self-contained, written by a fictional author whose name is Harold Vanner. And that is the first book I wrote because I was teaching myself what the arc of the story was going to be. Although in the novel, the story is greatly distorted and this Harold Vanner chap uh, takes a lot of liberties with facts. You know, he's very lax in that regard. But in my mind, I knew sort of what the main plot line was going to be. Then I wrote the third book, which is the memoir written by um, the secretary of a real life, in quotes, tycoon within the world of the novel. Then I wrote the second book, which is 
I hope this is not too confusing, mm-hmm. which is the autobiography written by that tycoon of whom this woman in the third part is the secretary. And then fourth and last, the memoir of the tycoon's wife, which was the hardest part to write. It's very short, but it's very intimate. And I don't know, I feel very exposed in that part of the book. Well, I wanted to ask you, because a lot of writers, Edith Wharton, for instance, uh, which is interesting because a lot of people are calling this novel Wharton-esque. Edith Wharton talked about the importance of trying to encapsulate the entire book in the first chapter. This book, I didn't get a complete picture of the story until the third installment. I mean, were you ever nervous when you were writing it that the reader wouldn't stick with you if you didn't honor that obsession with getting everything in the first chapter? I am never nervous when it comes to formulas like that. I don't feel that writing or the writing that I'm interested in is dogmatic in any sense. I think the rules for each book are written with and for that book. I don't believe in pre-existing commandments for writing. I was not nervous. I was I was hoping that the reader would be sufficiently intrigued every step of the way. As I said a moment ago, I think the first book is totally self-contained as a narrative. I actually, you know, I don't think I've said this before publicly. I was toying with the notion of publishing it first as a totally standalone piece and have it out there with the novel Harold <laughs> Banner, not even with my name on it. And I don't know, we didn't do it in the end. It seemed like too too weird. But that's the extent to which that book works on its own. The book that follows it is more demanding. It's also very short. It's more demanding because it is very much about finance capital. It's about money. It's this voice that is, you know, masculine and self-aggrandizing. It's a blowhard, you know, and it was written during the Trump years. So I had a very clear model out in reality <laughs> to base that, that, that voice on. But it's also very fragmentary and it's, again, short. That's also why I feel the table of contents is important because you know that you get through that. And the reader realizes, hopefully very quickly, that these two books, this obnoxious man, toxic man, and the novel are pitted against one another. And it becomes clear that the novel has been based on the life of this obnoxious man. So already the reader is engaged as a critic, as a detective, as a sort of very active presence in in sort of culling, comparing, and contrasting these versions. And then, yes, in the third part, the whole book goes into like narrative overdrive. But it couldn't be told. It's too big a spoiler also to explain why the structure had to be precisely that. Mm. But it had to be. Mm-hmm. It really had to be. Mm-hmm. You mentioned, and I think it's another risk you took and yet pulled off very, very well. And that is that the principal character who is fictionalized in the first book, but who is revealed as to who he is in the second, third and fourth parts. You used the word obnoxious. Uh, you called him obnoxious. Uh, that's risky <laughs> to make the principal person in the book obnoxious. Not to quibble, Charles, I called his voice obnoxious. <laughs> and it, it's a, there's a very big distinction because we learn ultimately, and this is the spoiler that I'm dancing around, we learn ultimately where that voice comes from and what his, this man's relationship is to that voice. I think he's a complex character, this tycoon. I try to approach him with great, a great deal of respect. I hope I haven't failed in that regard. I try to give him dignity as a character. I try to give him humanity. I think we see this in his relationship with his wife, with whom, you know, ultimately throughout the course of the book, 
he genuinely loves her and he genuinely tries to make her love him back, you know, and there are moments of great tenderness or as much tenderness as he's capable of. And I tried to show him in that light too. I didn't want to create a straw man that I can just, or like a piñata that I could just beat on. That to me is never interesting. I didn't want to write a didactical novel where I could present this man as some kind of negative example that, you know, I always try to think of George Eliot in this particular, I try to think of George Eliot, period, because she's one of my favorite writers ever. But part of her profound ethical dimension as a writer, to me, lies in the fact she succeeds in what I just said I was trying to do, which is to show immense respect for all of her characters and never put them up there simply to sort of dress them down in any kind of moral way. And I I find that commendable and it's a great aspiration of mine as a writer. It's a big thematic in this book, money and people's relationship with money. And there's about a million descriptions of money in this book, that it could be bent back upon itself and force fed its own body, that the physical dirt on the greasy wrinkled singles and fives. When you approached this book, how did you feel about America's relationship with money? And did the writing of this book change the way you feel at all? I think I approached this book because I wanted to know more about America's relationship with money. I lived in a few different countries for extended periods of time. I can claim to know these countries really well, almost as well as a native. And in none of those countries and none of the other countries that I know of, not as deeply, Money has such a crucial place in the national narrative of what that country may be, as it does in the United States. This, to me, was very interesting in a double sense. In the first part, there is the heroic notion of capital, you know, that capital can conquer all, that capital can alter reality, that there's a superhuman or that capital endows whoever is acquired to amass it with superhuman qualities. The notion of American dream revolves around capital. Like if you strip it down, that's that's what it is about. Essentially, it's about money making, right? It's the notion of freedom to a large extent is the freedom of industry, to an enormous extent, that's what it refers to. As we see that freedom's tested in many ways, even today, you know, that's one corner that will always remain sort of unbridled. So on the one hand, you have this set of qualities around capital. And on the other hand, it's a total taboo. There is this enormous priggishness around money. We don't talk about money. Don't ask me how much my mortgage is. Don't ask me what my monthly paycheck is. Don't ask. And you mentioned Edith Wharton. And that is, if you read her memoir, A Backward Glance, in the early chapters, she talks about that, you know, and she was famously from this sort of blue-blooded New York family. And money was just not talked about. Work was not talked about, you know. And this coexists, again, with this sort of deification of money on the other hand. So this dissonance, this stark contrast to me was very fascinating. Our conversations with Barbara Kaysolver and Hernan Diaz, brilliant, brilliant books, brilliant, brilliant writers, really brilliant podcast hosts for (laughs) tracking down those books, sounding so smart when we talked to them. Man, did we hold our own. I just want to review our own performance. I think we deserve a Pulitzer. That was amazing. I laughed. I cried. It was better than cats. (laughs) 
Well, I, I, I'm sorry. I wasn't expecting any of that. As I say, we were very fortunate uh, that both of them agreed to come on the podcast. And, uh, and as I say, we can call this podcast, Aren't We Prescient? The Bookcase with Kate and Charlie Gibson is a production of ABC Audio. It's produced by David Canada in conjunction with SureCam Productions. Brenda Salinas-Baker is our senior producer and Laura Mayer is our executive producer. We give special thanks to Josh Cohen, Elizabeth Russo, Nania McLean, and Cameron Chertavian. Find a beautiful sentence every day. If you can't write it. For the kids who wake up hungry in those dark places every day, who've lost their families to poverty and pain pills, whose caseworkers keep losing their files, who feel invisible or wish they were, this book is for you. Thank you.